Good evening, I'm Amna Navaz. And I'm Jeff Bennett. On the News Hour tonight, thousands gather for the funeral of Russian opposition leader Alexei Navalny, defying the Kremlin and fears of a police crackdown. Four years after the first COVID-19 death in the U.S., we speak to the CDC director about new guidance for when to isolate, return to work, and get a booster shot. We think we found the balance to protecting the most vulnerable and having this clear and simple way for most folks to protect themselves. And a Nobel Peace Prize winner working to combat poverty in his home country of Bangladesh defends his reputation against corruption charges. Welcome to the News Hour. Russian opposition leader Alexei Navalny was buried today on the outskirts of Moscow, two weeks after his sudden death in a Siberian prison camp. He was mourned by thousands in the streets amid threats by the Kremlin and a massive police presence. With his mother and father by his casket, but with his wife and children outside of Russia, Navalny showed in death he could still conjure resistance to Putin's authoritarian rule. Nick Schifrin begins our coverage. Alexei Navalny dreamed of a Russia that was free, its citizens unafraid. And today, thousands, perhaps tens of thousands, braved arrest to thank the man who helped them replace fear of the state with faith in themselves. They chant, Russia will be free. Putin is a murderer. No to war. We couldn't not come. Let them see that many remember, many know. Silencing won't work. And yet today was also a reminder of the fate that befalls the Kremlin's opponents. Navalny's open casket, overseen by his parents, removed quickly before everyone could say goodbye. But even in his last moments above ground, in his last rites, as the priests covered his face, Navalny did it his way. The orchestra played Frank Sinatra's My Way the moment he was buried. And after, the theme song to Terminator 2, whose primary message is, the future is not yet written. And that, perhaps, is Navalny's legacy, reminding Russians their fate hasn't been decided and that politics requires participation and the will to fight. Today, the risk of arrest was real. Police detained dozens of Navalny supporters across the country. And before the funeral, Kremlin spokesman Dmitry Peskov warned this. Any unauthorized gatherings will be in violation of the law, and those who participate in them will be held accountable. In Russia's system, Navalny was the equivalent of a terrorist leader, sentenced to decades in prison for extremism. He died in a penal colony of what authorities called natural causes. His wife, Yulia, said he was murdered. Alexei was tortured for three years. He was starved in a tiny stone cell, cut off from the outside world and denied visits, phone calls, and then even letters. And then they killed him. Today, Yulia Navalnaya posted this video tribute, a love letter to a love song, a wife who's lost her husband, a Russian opposition who's lost its leader. Navalny always knew he could be silenced, he wasn't afraid of that either. My message for the uh, situation when I am killed is very simple, not give up. And so today, they didn't. Navalny might have been imprisoned, one attendee said today, but he died a free man. For the PBS NewsHour, I'm Nick Schifrin. We're going to talk more about this now with Dan Storiev, English Managing Editor at OVD Info. That's a human rights organization that aims to end political persecution in Russia. He's also participated in Navalny protests. Thank you for being with us. 
As we saw, thousands of people lined up to pay their respects at the funeral for Alexei Navalny. That's despite a heavy police presence aimed at deterring protests against Vladimir Putin. What should we make of this stunning display of defiance? Well, thanks for having me. Uh, the important thing to know is that despite the horrific cost of actually showing up onto the streets, you can be beaten, you can be imprisoned for many years. Uh, Russians throughout Russia, not just in Moscow and St. Petersburg, they're still willing to show up because they despise the war and they despise what the authoritarian Kremlin regime has done to Alexei Navalny. And they've been showing up, they've been protesting, some covertly, some overtly, for uh, for many years, and they continued protesting after the full-scale invasion and after the ramping up of repressions. Officials kept Navalny's body for more than a week before ultimately releasing it to his mother, and she accused them of trying to pressure her into agreeing to a secret burial. Why do you think they caved and ultimately allowed this funeral to take place? That's absolutely right. Uh, Kremlin's officials wanted to put Navalny's family through the world of hurt. Uh, they started doing this for a while now. This didn't start with them murdering Alexei Navalny. They've actually destroyed Navalny's mom's business uh, back, you know, years ago during law through lawfare. Uh, and I think the reason why they caved in was a massive public campaign demanding the release of Navalny's body. In fact, OBD Info, my organization, we're happy to say that we participated in that public uh, in a public pressure campaign. Our platform gathered over. 100,000 submissions demanding uh, Navalny's body be released. Isn't the Kremlin, though, impervious to outside pressure like that, or at least they're thought to be? Uh, not exactly. It's quite clear that the Kremlin still is concerned about public attention within Russia and outside of Russia. And that's why it's important that Western viewers and Western media in general, that you keep your eyes peeled on uh, what's going on in Russia, what's going on in the Kremlin, and what's especially what's going on with political prisoners, of whom there are over a thousand throughout Russia right now. It's important that we keep attention on them. Alexei Navalny was buried to the soundtrack of his favorite movie, which was Terminator 2. Uh, what's the significance there? Well, Navalny, I think he's so his his significance, his symbolic significance and the, the meaning of his campaign in Russia. He wanted to give hope to ordinary Russians. And I think that the Terminator theme, more specifically, it's this this final shot of uh, Arnold Schwarzenegger going down with, you know, the thumbs up. I think this sums up what Navalny would have wanted, uh, would have wanted for the, the people of Russia to know that he's trying to give them hope, even beyond the grave. Uh, I'm sure that Alexei Navalny would have wanted Russians, the Russians not to despair, but to remain hopeful, because Navalny believed in a Russia that is not just free, but in a Russia that is happy and beautiful. And that is impossible to achieve without hope for change. With Navalny's sudden death, the Russian opposition has lost its leading figure. What does it do now? Well, the thing about Russian opposition is that it doesn't concentrate just on Navalny's figure. Of course, Navalny is an a larger-than-life symbol. Uh, so are many other symbols and figures within Russian opposition and Russian civil society. But what's important is we keep our eyes on the grassroots element of Russian civil society and the grassroots element of Russian opposition. It's quite clear that Russian opposition, Russian civil society, they are not mourning. They're organizing. They are taking all the power they have, and they are trying to carry on Navalny's banner. Uh, so the important thing right now is to support them, especially for those, those of you in the West who are wondering, how can I help uh, Russian civil society and Russian resistance? Well, how you can help is by pressuring your representatives, pressuring your politicians into providing shelter and platform uh, to Russian dissidents, uh, to Russian civil society representatives who have to flee abroad, or even to those who are within Russia. So that any sort of conversation that Western leaders have with Russian leaders, uh, the fate of Russian political prisoners is front and center. Dan Storyev is with the human rights organization OVD Info. Thank you for your time this evening. Thank you very much for having me.
In the day's other headlines, President Biden announced the U.S. military will begin airdropping humanitarian aid into Gaza. He spoke a day after crowds swarmed an aid convoy, and Gazan officials said Israeli fire killed 115 people. The Israelis say most of the victims were trampled. The president addressed the issue at the White House. Aid flowing to Gaza is nowhere nearly enough now. It's nowhere nearly enough. Innocent lives are on the line and children's lives are on the line. And we won't stand by and let until, they, until we get more aid in there. We, we should be getting hundreds of trucks in, not just several. Meantime, the military wing of Hamas said seven more hostages taken last October have died from Israeli bombardment. The group claimed that all told, Israeli attacks have killed more than 70 hostages. In Haiti, at least four police officers have been killed in a new burst of gang warfare. Gunmen attacked across Port-au-Prince on Thursday, and people fled with their hands up. The gang federation leader, Jimmy Terizier, known as Barbecue, vowed to oust the prime minister. The first objective of our fight is to ensure that Prime Minister Ariel Henry's government does not remain in power. The armed groups in the provincial towns and in the capital are united today. The U.S. Embassy warned today of continued heavy gunfire near the Port-au-Prince airport. For his part, Prime Minister Henry was in Kenya to secure policing help against the gangs as part of a U.N. mission. Back in this country, a judge in Colorado sentenced a paramedic to five years in prison in the death of Elijah McLean. Police put McLean in a, a chokehold during a confrontation in 2019, and paramedics injected him with a sedative ketamine. He died three days later. The man sentenced today, Peter Chakuniak, was found guilty of criminally negligent homicide. Officials in Texas now say the biggest wildfire in state history may have destroyed 500 homes and other buildings in the panhandle. Drone footage today showed more devastation in the town of Canadian. Governor Greg Abbott visited the region today and said the scope of the loss is stunning. When you look at the damages that have occurred here, it's just gone, completely gone. Nothing left but ashes on the ground. Fire crews worked again today to make progress before strong winds return over the weekend. Blizzard conditions are raging across the Sierra Nevada with 10 feet of snow forecast into the weekend. Warnings span 300 miles from Yosemite National Park to Lake Tahoe. Snow blanketed California roadways today as the most powerful storm of the season rolled in. People were warned to expect closures and ski resorts started shutting down. Pharmacy giants CVS and Walgreens will start selling the abortion pill Mifepristone in selected areas this month. The companies announced today they've received FDA certification. They'll start sales in a few states where abortion is legal. It all comes as the Supreme Court is considering a challenge to the FDA's approval of the drug. On Wall Street, tech stocks rallied and pushed the overall market to new records. The Dow Jones Industrial Average gained 91 points to close at 39,087. The Nasdaq rose 183 points to a new high. And the S&P 500 was up 40, also hitting a fresh high. And the Tower of London has a new raven master to care for a feathered flock that protects the thousand-year-old fortress. Barney Chandler will look after seven ravens that roam the grounds freely by day and are kept in cages overnight. He says legend has it that if the birds ever leave, England will collapse. Still to come on the NewsHour, David Brooks and Jonathan Capehart weigh in on the week's political headlines. And Beyonce becomes the first black woman to top the Billboard country charts. We'll take a closer look. This is the PBS NewsHour from WETA Studios in Washington and in the West from the Walter Cronkite School of Journalism at Arizona State University. The Centers for Disease Control and Prevention has changed its COVID guidance for when people need to isolate. It's part of the CDC's broader recommendations on respiratory illnesses. The agency now says people who've tested positive can return to normal activities when symptoms are improving and they've been fever-free for at least 24 hours without medication. But the CDC also encourages people with improving symptoms to take additional prevention measures like mask wearing and keeping distance in public. CDC Director Dr. Mandy Cohen joins me now. Dr. Cohen, welcome back to the News Hour. Thanks for joining us. 
Thanks for having me. Great to be here. So this is the first time you've shifted guidance, uh, isolation guidance, since 2021. That was when it was reduced from 10 days to five days. Why these changes in guidance right now? What's that based on? Well, we are in a different place, and that's after a lot of hard work to make sure that we had the tools to protect each other against COVID. What we've been seeing is lower hospitalizations and lower deaths, even as we saw high levels of virus spread. So this past winter season, we saw both in our wastewater data and others that there was a lot of virus spreading in our community. But luckily, those trends in hospitalizations and death continued to go down. And what we were seeing is that really vaccination is what is continuing to protect folks. So we wanted to uh, unify our guidance today, not just for COVID, but across COVID, flu, and RSV, so folks could have common sense, practical solutions that they could use every day, that they can remember, that they can implement across a range of viruses. Now, there were some states, as you know, like California, Oregon, others that began relaxing their COVID isolation guidance as early as last year, counter to your guidance at the time. Is this sort of the CDC kind of chasing, catching up to where people have already been for a while? Well, you know what? We were looking at this guidance last summer and seeing if we can move in this direction. And then the virus changed in last August, and we wanted to make sure we were through another winter season, that those trends in lower hospitalizations and lower deaths continued to hold. And the good news is they did. Um, and so we feel comfortable moving forward now. But remember, like always, this virus is changing. If anything changes in terms of our effectiveness of vaccines or treatment, um, we may be back here needing to change guidance, but we feel comfortable um, aligning across COVID, flu, and RSV for some simple solutions like vaccination, like making sure you get treatment um, and staying home when you're sick. As you mentioned, the cases of COVID have fallen dramatically, but your data does show that there's still hundreds of people dying every week from COVID, still some 20,000 hospitalized weekly. Uh, as you know, this guidance change has its critics. Among them is Dr. Eric Topol, who co-authored one of the first reviews of asymptomatic COVID infections. He said that this policy change is reckless, and he said it will serve to promote more spread of COVID and long COVID. Could it do that? So one, I want to say, remember, vaccines and treatment continue to protect folks. Just this past season, in the beginning of the season, if we saw that 95% of the people who were coming to the hospital did not have an updated COVID vaccine and 70% didn't have the one from the year before, right? So what we're seeing said another way is vaccines can protect us from going to the hospital or having our life being taken by this virus. So we have to use those tools. I think you also know that far too few adults got the updated COVID vaccine. Only about 20, 22% of adults got the updated COVID vaccine, 40% of seniors. So we definitely need to see folks using that important tool to protect themselves. But to be fair, the vaccine can obviously prevent serious illness, but it doesn't prevent spread of COVID. Will people isolating for a, a shorter amount of time potentially add to the spread of the virus? Well, the good news is when you get vaccinated, right, you are both less likely to go into the hospital, but you're also less likely to get long COVID and you are less likely to get this virus overall, right? So less virus spreading means uh, that we are protecting others. And now we wanted to give simple, clear uh, kinds of guidance so that folks can remember them. It can be really actionable because if more people are using the guidance, we think that's going to benefit everyone. And look, the folks who are vulnerable, they were top of mind uh, for us at CDC as we were thinking about this guidance. We all know someone who's at higher risk, over 65 or immunocompromised. I have them in my own family. Um, so we were thinking about them as we did this guidance. Um, we think we found the balance to protecting the most vulnerable and having this clear and simple way uh, for most folks to protect themselves. You also said this week that Americans 65 and older should get an additional dose of that latest COVID vaccine this spring. Do you worry that relaxing the guidance at the same time you're asking people to go and get another booster sends conflicting messages? 
No, and in fact, our guidance today, the very first core strategy that we want to emphasize to folks is about being up to date on your vaccines. Vaccines is what we are continuing to see uh, protect folks here. So we want to make sure folks are getting those updated vaccines. And I want to preview for folks that we know this COVID virus continues to change um, and we need to stay ahead of it. Um, and we've already started the process, CDC and FDA, to um, update the COVID vaccine for later this year. So right now, folks should start planning for this fall to get both an updated COVID vaccine and an updated flu shot. All right, Dr. Mandy Cohen, CDC director, thank you very much for joining us. Good to speak with you. Thank you so much. Nearly half a century after its birth from a bloody civil war, Bangladesh has made significant strides in reducing poverty. One of the best-known architects of this progress is Muhammad Yunus, who popularized the concept of microfinance. But Yunus has run afoul of his country's prime minister and has faced a series of legal challenges and now criminal charges. Fred DeSam Lazaro has our report, part of his series, Agents for Change. He's won the Presidential Medal of Freedom and the Congressional Medal of Honor. Make no mistake, Muhammad Yunus is a genius. Nearly a half century ago, this Vanderbilt-trained economist left a teaching career in Tennessee, saying he was called to serve his newly independent, war-shattered nation. People were dying of hunger, uh, and I find myself in a very strange situation teaching elegant theories of economics. Those uh, elegant theories have no uh, uh, use for people who are dying. He did test one economic theory, offering a few women loans to start small enterprises like a poultry farm. It worked, he told me in this 2001 interview. People are paying back and they paid back every penny without any hitch. So I got very excited. So I thought I should have my own bank. The Grameen Bank grew quickly, 97% owned by millions of its female borrowers, success that earned him the Nobel Peace Prize in 2006. Today, Grameen has a large footprint in Bangladeshi society, far beyond micro-lending with affiliated companies that sell cell phone service and food products. There's even a nursing school. Its global reach includes Grameen America, which last year loaned $1 billion to low-income Americans. All profits are plowed back into expanding the mission. Eunice has won friends in the highest places across the globe, except at home. In January, Eunice, who's 83, and three senior Grameen colleagues were sentenced to six months in prison for violating labor laws, charges he calls politically motivated. He was released on bail, but this case is only the beginning of his legal troubles. He faces more than a hundred other charges of labor law violations and graft. What's life like as you uh, go into work these days? Well, not very comfortable. I reached Eunice in his Dachau office, where days earlier a group of about 35 men appeared unannounced to take over and began padlocking the place at the end of each day. They said, we are the new management of this. Uh, I mean, bank that is under uh, government control these days. Uh, we went to the police. Police would not help us. This latest disruption is a dramatic escalation of actions targeting Yunus that began in 2011 when he was removed as chair of the Grameen Bank. Because government rule doesn't permit anybody to remain in government job uh, after 60. I said, this is not a government bank. This is a bank owned by the poor women. Anyway, I was forced out. Can you help explain what is at the root of this antagonism? Uh, it beats me. What's not in doubt is that his chief antagonist is the country's prime minister. She calls me as a, a bloodsucker of the poor people. Sheikh Hasina recently won a fourth term in elections widely discredited and boycotted by opposition parties. Most of their leaders are in prison. She's publicly denounced Eunice as a corrupt opportunist in a spat that experts trace back to 2007 and a time of political upheaval, when Eunice toyed with forming his own party. It was at the urging of the country's military leaders, he says, and short-lived. About 10 weeks, that's about it. 
And after the end of this 10 weeks, I declared that, no, I'm not going to create any party because I cannot uh, uh, handle politics. Uh, that's my, not my cup of tea. But experts say Prime Minister Hasina might still perceive Yunus, a revered civic figure, as a political threat. Despite pleas from more than 200 global luminaries, from former President Obama to U2's Bono, to end the, quote, legal harassment, the campaign against Yunus has only intensified. This case is an example, is weaponization of judiciary. Political scientist Ali Riaz at Illinois State University says Sheikh Hasina has tightened her grip on power. Geopolitical realities allow her to resist Western pressure, he says, and the Eunice case sends a chilling message domestically. Prime Minister has received you know, unqualified support from two powers, that is Russia and China. Not to mention India. India has been the principal backer of this government since 2009. And this is a message to the Bangladeshis that if Professor Yunus can be prosecuted and punitive measures can be taken, you and nobody, we can take, do anything. So what might Professor Yunus be facing in the weeks and months ahead? I'm afraid he might actually end up in jail. I, I'm sorry to say that it, it, it breaks my heart to say, but it, it could happen. Government officials insist the judicial process is independent of political interference. We contacted the Bangladesh Embassy in Washington for comment, but did not receive a response. I, as the chairman of the, these companies, never received any salary, uh, any kind of uh, uh, fee for my attending meetings, nothing. For his part, Yunus continues to assert his innocence. He says he's received several offers of asylum abroad, but has ruled out exile. This is where I work with my work, people who have worked together for years and years. Uh, we don't, I don't want to abandon them and go someplace else. I cannot do that. He has a bail hearing on March 3rd, also the date when an anti-corruption commission is scheduled to release what many colleagues fear will be incriminating results from a years-long investigation of Eunice's activities. For the PBS NewsHour, I'm Fred Sam Lazaro. And Fred's reporting is a partnership with the Undertold Stories Project at the University of St. Thomas in Minnesota. This PBS NewsHour podcast is supported in part by Dana-Farber Cancer Institute. Their scientists played a substantial role in developing more than half the cancer drugs approved by the FDA in the last five years. Dana-Farber Cancer Institute has been making one advanced cancer discovery after another for over 75 years. Dana-Farber Cancer Institute is changing lives everywhere. Find out more at DanaFarber.org slash everywhere. Only a few days remain before Super Tuesday, which is shaping up to be a major turning point in the race for the White House. On that and some of the key issues in the presidential race, we turn to the analysis tonight of Brooks and Capehart. That's New York Times columnist David Brooks and Jonathan Capehart, associate editor for The Washington Post. Great to see you both as always. Yeah. So both President Biden and former President Donald Trump visited the southern border yesterday as the 2024 presidential campaign ramps up over this issue that has really confounded administrations of both parties. That's immigration. Jonathan, how are Democrats aiming to boost their standing among voters who increase increasingly say that immigration is their top issue in this election. By pointing out the fact that the president, the sitting president of the United States, uh, in conjunction with the Senate Majority Leader Chuck, Sch uh, Chuck Schumer, along with one of the most conservative members uh, of the Senate, um, oh my gosh, I can't believe I'm spacing on his, Langford, Langford Senator, Senator Oklahoma, Langford yeah. from, from Oklahoma, that they sat down and hammered out a deal after the president went before the nation and said, everything is on the table. I'm willing to negotiate. They negotiated, they came up with a bill that bits and pieces of it were leaking out that was so bad from the president's base perspective that they were raising hell about if this becomes law, this is gonna set immigration policy back for a long time, but the president thought we need to do something. They come up with the bill and what happened? Donald Trump made a phone call or put out some social media post and said, don't do it. Republicans refused to take yes for an answer and gave the president, gave President Biden the perfect thing to go before the nation and say, I'm trying. 
I was part of this deal. They, I gave them basically everything they wanted, and they still said no. Those people are not serious. And I think if he hammers that message time and time again, I think it will, I think it will break through. And, and, and part of what Jonathan just described was on full display at the border yesterday. President Biden invited President Trump to call on Republicans to support this bipartisan uh, border deal. And then former President Trump accused Joe Biden of having a, what he called a Joe Biden invasion. That's the way he referred to the migrant crisis. I mean, it, it's, it's, it's fairly clear uh, how they're trying to, to play at the politics here. Well, it's obviously Trump's strongest point. I mean, only 28 percent of Americans support Joe Biden's immigration policy. They prefer Trump's policy over Biden's policy by, like, infinite percent. And so Trump has the country on his side when it comes to this border. And the, the simple fact is the Democrats have been sort of out of touch on this issue. Uh, in 2016, you had a large numbers of candidates in a Democratic primary raise their hand and say they were for decriminalizing the border. That was, compared to where America is, that's far off. Second, the Biden policies just haven't worked. Uh, this, our asylum system was created after World War II to help those with extreme persecution. That was a long time ago. Right now, there are like 40 million people in the world who are facing that kind of persecution. We can't take all those people. And we can't have a policy that prioritizes uh, the people who are breaking the law rather than people who are applying through the asylum system according to law. So to me, the issue right now is not necessarily immigration. It's chaos. Uh, and so Biden has to do the thing which I think the British have done, which is to say, we're going to stop the asylum process until we can digest all the people who have already in the system. And that will at least try to impose some order, because if there's just chaos, it's going to be just bad news for Biden. But the only problem is, it, it, that would be a great thing to do, David, but there's no money. One of the things about that Senate bill was that it was giving funding to allow the Customs and Border Patrol to do the things you were just saying. So the chaos will continue, not because the president isn't doing enough, but because, but because the Senate can't pass a bill that would make it possible for the president to do what he wants to do, but also for Republicans to get done what they say needs to be, needs to be done for years now. Well, let me ask you this, because the president is weighing some executive action, absent congressional action, that would allow him to tighten asylum rules. So if, if there is a problem, and both sides say that there is a problem at the southern border, and he has the authority to tighten the asylum rules, why not do it? What's he waiting for? I, I mean, I wonder, does he really have, does he really have the power? I wonder if the White House, and you should have asked me that question beforehand so I could have made some calls to the White House <laughs> to, to see what they're doing. Um, but, you know, the president has made it clear uh, since the bill, before the bill was, was made public or just after, that, you know, he's willing to do that. Why he hasn't done that, I wonder if that's because they're trying to really see the legalities of doing it. Well, looking ahead to next week, it's going to be a busy one. We've got Super Tuesday and the State of the Union. But let's start with Super Tuesday, because more than a dozen states are set to hold presidential nominating contests. Uh, and this is a real milestone for the 2024 race. The results might be anticlimactic, right? But we will learn more about the strengths and weaknesses of Donald Trump and Joe Biden. What are you going to be watching for? Um, how soon Nikki Haley drops out after, <laughs> after she gets crushed in every state? Um, you know, I, you know, Nikki Haley's like 52. She's got a long political future in front of her. And if she stays in the race too long after Super Tuesday, she's really damaging the party that she, I presume, wants to be part of. And so I, I imagine that she'll drop out. Uh, and the other thing to look for is how much weakness, how much softness is there is in the Biden coalition. Obviously, there were some non-committed voters in Michigan. Uh, is there a lot of that? I would strike for all the people who are upset with Joe Biden, they're not exactly rushing out to Dean Phillips. Like, there's no <laughs> Gene Phillips juggernaut. And so that leads me to believe people are nervous about Biden losing, but they like the guy, they support him, they think he did a good job. So he's, I think he is pretty strong support in the Democratic Party. How about you, Jonathan? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> no, the, I, the things I'll be looking for will be the, the percentage spread between Donald Trump and Nikki Haley. It, it's been growing since, since Iowa, but the fact that she lost her home state, okay, fine, in South Carolina, but she got 40% of the vote. That is a sizable chunk of the Republican electorate that says, you know, we're not down with this guy. And so w will that replicate itself um, in, the Super in the Super Tuesday states? And when it comes to, to the Democratic side, I want to see if there are states that have uncommitted, non-committed, or 
Dean Phillips, uh, how much support they get. And I suspect, especially since it's too, Super Tuesday, they're not going to get a lot of su support at all. Yeah. I think perhaps the biggest story this past week was the Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell announcing uh, that he would not seek another term as the Republican leader, ending a stretch as the longest-serving party leader in Senate history. I want to get your reaction to his announcement and really your assessment of his consequential and controversial legacy. David. Yeah, I think it was epical. Uh, he, and mostly because he made it clear, I'm out of touch with the party. <laughs> and so the, I would tell this historical story. In the 1930s, the Republican Party was a pessimistic, inward-looking party that shut down the borders, that shut down trade, that was isolationist. And that was the Republican Party of the 1930s. And that party lasted until 1952, when Dwight Eisenhower took an inward party and made it an outward party that was for internationalism, that was for free trade, that was for immigration. And that Ike-led party really lasted 60 years. And over the last couple years, we can say that party's over and we're returning to the 1930s Republican Party. Isolation, uh, some degree of nativism, and some degree of protectionism. On that point, Jonathan, I was talking with a top Democrat the other day who said he thought he would never be in a position to say that he would miss Mitch McConnell. <laughs> but given the alternatives, the potential alternatives, that's kind of how he's feeling. Yeah, you know what? Let me give Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell his flowers. Let me just give him his flowers because he is, you know, our, um, you know, our version of the master of the Senate. Wily, cunning. No one knows the Senate rules like Mitch McConnell. He's even he even made up some rules, made up the rule that you can't um, a, a sitting president cannot nominate someone to the Supreme Court with nine months to go before the election. The American people should choose the president, who then chooses the justice. So he stole a Supreme Court seat from President from President Obama. Fast forward to um, the death of Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg. Few, what, a month before the election, three days, three days before the election, he turned tail and said, no, we must, we must have a new justice. And Justice Amy Coney Barrett um, got onto the, Supreme, onto the Supreme Court, sealing a conservative supermajority, 6-3 supermajority. Um, another thing he did was remake the federal judiciary in the image that he wanted it to be in, which was young and conservative, a pipeline of federal judges, young federal judges, some of dubious quality, who would then rise up and, you know, fill higher, higher benches in the federal judiciary. And then, um, last but not least, uh, Senator McConnell, when he was majority leader, uh, voted not to convict Donald Trump in his second impeachment trial for his role in the insurrection of January 6th. If he had voted to convict Donald Trump, other senators would have followed along. Trump would have been convicted. We not, might not be in the position we are in today. And what made it, what his action even more galling was that after he cast that vote and let Trump off the hook, he stood in the well of the Senate and gave a fire and brimstone speech that was the right thing to say. Unfortunately, it didn't match the vote he gave. So. Um, as while well, I'll give him his flowers for being a mastermind, a master political genius for what he wanted to do, um, he he I think he's responsible for a lot of the problems that we're facing right now uh, in the country and our democracy. What's up? Was that? Those aren't very nice flowers. <laughs> <laughs> David Brooks and Jonathan Capehart. Our thanks to you both. Thanks. <laughs>this week, Beyonce continued her reign at the top of the country charts. Last week, she became the first black woman to hit number one with her banjo-infused bop, Texas Hold'em. The song has brought a new audience to the genre and reminded music fans of country music's deep African and African-American roots. We take a closer look for our arts and culture series, Canvas. Like many looking for connection during the pandemic, 47-year-old Marie Mooring took her love of dance to TikTok, despite the protests of her daughter, Patience Hall. Hopped on TikTok after my daughters told me not to because it was for the younger generation, but I had to prove them wrong. Mother and daughter soon teamed up online. 
tell me about the typical kind of dances you do. For me, in particularly, is the upbeat, funky, move your body in this rhythmic fashion, old school kind of 90s hip hop. As a tornado. But last week, the duo stepped into a new genre, a country song courtesy of Beyonce. I said, oh, we're doing country now, Beyonce? <laughs> The song, Texas Hold'em, is one of two new country singles she released off her upcoming album. Why not country? I started thinking about my mother and my grandmother and my great-grandmother who are all in Texas who gave me an upbringing of summers in the country. Just to hear that cowgirl attitude, <laughs> it really made me want to jump into it too. Can I tell you my favorite part of your dance? What's that? What, the finger pistols? Hey! Yes. I don't know how you dance the country music. Um, so I just made it my own, like a lot of people are, and had fun with it. This ain't Texas. Ain't no 30-year-old Jasmine Jennings is a professional dancer in Fort Wayne, Indiana. She created her own line dance to Texas Hold'em, which now has over 10 million views. It blew up pretty fast. I was surprised that a lot of people enjoyed what I did. So someone asked me to make a less complicated version of that. So I did, uh, and that one blew up a little bit. And then someone said, okay, now do a musical theater version, which I've never done musical theater. So I had to do a little bit of research on that one. And so it's just kind of growing. I've seen people belly dancing. I've seen people river dancing to that song. It's sparking a lot of creativity and challenging people to move to music that they typically wouldn't. While some Beyonce fans turned to country through her new tracks, longtime country music fan Vinnie Doc Coletti was drawn to Texas Hold'em's opening chords, played on his favorite instrument. I mean, the first thing that stood out to me was the banjo intro. I recognized what that was right away. That was definitely like a low-tuned fretless banjo, and that was fascinating to me to hear, you know, especially from Beyonce. Coletti shared the songs on a country music subreddit, a message board devoted to the genre that he moderates. And he says while most of the response was positive, some questioned why Beyonce would step into country and why the songs were getting so much attention. Would you expect to see some kind of backlash? I mean, I know country music is famously, especially modernly, overwhelmingly white, largely male. There has definitely been a little bit of backlash, which, you know, is more gatekeepy than anything. Um, but, you know, there are always people who think that, you know, she's intruding on the white space music as a black woman. And I have seen a few posts like that. Without black influences, country is folk music. Alice Randall is widely recognized as the first black woman to co-write a number one country hit. Black people have been in country abidingly since the beginning of the genre. For example, the banjo has a long and complex history, but that history begins in Africa. He said, I'll love the kind of bent note, open-throated singing that we hear in country, or even the sound of the steel guitar, these sounds have their aesthetic origins in Africa. Randall spent over 40 years as a songwriter in Nashville. Her new book, My Black Country, unpacks the erasure of country music's black roots and the industry's exclusion of black artists for decades. Even today, a country music radio station in Oklahoma initially refused to play Beyonce's songs. Beyonce has blasted through the intended and not intended boundaries, the cultural redlining, and she has ascended to a height no other Black woman has ascended to in country. This is a tribute to her own genius, and it spotlights the genius that came before. I just don't need nobody. A path forged by trailblazers like Charlie Pride and DeFord Bailey, and more recently, Darius Rucker, Reese Palmer, and Brittany Spencer. Like my good Work that Randall argues allows the music to reach a wider audience. An audience that, thanks to Beyonce, now includes Marie and Patience. We've been digging into country music, like people are sharing more artists. I guess the big question is, does this mean we're going to be seeing more country music dances on your TikTok? Listen, I'm invested. Right, we, that's the we got boots. I was just about to say. <laughs> I was just about to say we went to we went to the Target and we got our we got our country hats we got our boots we got our attire yeah so we're ready for anything we're ready. St. Texas.
And we will be back shortly. But first, take a moment to hear from your local PBS station. It's a chance to offer your support, which helps keep programs like ours on the air. And for those of you staying with us, we look at one man's extraordinary efforts to return neglected or misplaced family mementos to their owners. Special correspondent Christopher Booker reports from New York in this Encore story. They can show everything from life's big moments to snapshots of the everyday. But these videos all share the same purpose, to find out just who these memories might belong to. It's a task undertaken by a man who's been dubbed the Sherlock of TikTok. Any photograph is my first priority, but I'm looking for anything that's technically a, a lost memory. For 27-year-old David Guttenmacher, this search often begins at a thrift store. It could be a home movie, a film reel, VHS tape, a diary, letters, photo albums, and even memory cards that are still stuck inside of cameras. During the early days of the pandemic in 2020, Guttenmacher was looking for a project when he stumbled upon a bucket full of old photos. Immediately I thought that if my family photographs were in there, I would want someone to flip over the back, read my family name on it, and then try to find me on online. So I thought I might as well start doing that for other people. I found this strip of film at the thrift store in New York. So he turned to social media and created what is now the popular Museum of Lost Memories a TikTok and Instagram account of the same name with more than a million followers combined. This is just some of the stuff that I have collected over the last two years. Guttenmacher, a social media manager for a healthcare company by day, brings his finds home to digitize and post to his accounts, hoping the social media platforms will help deliver the old videos, letters, pictures, and anything else he finds to their original owners. Is there any commonality in the ways in which these items have ended up in the places where you found them? Yeah, I think most of the things that I find come from either a move or after a family member passes away, a lot of the items just get misplaced, boxed up, cleared out, and people don't really know what they're getting rid of. So far, only about 10% of the materials has made its way back home. But whether a return happens or not, he believes the effort is worth it. I just love it. I think it's important. I think it's extremely important. I think that people deserve to have their memories back. And I think that everyday life is important to be preserved. Just a month and a half after starting the museum, Guttmacher was able to make his first connection with this tape. Yeah, I found this at a thrift store on Long Island. The only clues we had to go off of were that it said Africa, but right away I realized it was a vacation from Africa, so they likely weren't from there. And then there was a shirt. He was wearing a shirt that said Wesleyan University. That shirt was the key that ultimately helped identify Jono Marcus. At first, being contacted, I didn't think it was real. I thought it was spam. Two faces are coming along. How you doing? In 1989, Marcus was 23 years old when he and his parents went on a safari to Kenya and Tanzania. His mom brought a Sony Mini DV camcorder and captured this footage that would be found by Guttmacher more than 30 years later. I'm talking to you. <laughs> And we didn't really lose track of it, like we lost it, you know, it just gets buried in, in the stuff. And then my father died around seven years ago. And when my mom moved house, you know, it's a little, little cassette tape. So it just kind of got lost in there. Lost until Guttenmacher's post went viral and a team of volunteers started chipping in to try to find out who this family was. And this woman, Julie, sent me a link and I looked at it in disbelief, like, sure enough, my mom and dad and I are trending on TikTok, which I didn't even know what that meant at the time. So it turns out that the video garnered so many comments that they, TikTokers decided to do some internet sleuthing and found me. Marcus, who is now 56 and lives in Bethesda, Maryland, ended up posting another video on TikTok, recreating parts of the original footage with his wife and children. He says these two videos, which have been viewed more than 10 million times, struck a chord with people during the pandemic. I think it presented opportunities for people to, to finally just feel themselves, let go, not be scared. And there's a lot of um, TikTok posts that include videos of people crying when they see it. 
And part of it is very, it's a very simple kind of family on a safari. And I think the ending with my father and then showing that he had passed, um, that just, as an ending, that just really hit a lot of people. Since then, Guttenmacher has made several more connections, including with the Friedmans, a Jewish family who lived in Vienna during World War II and lost these photos taken in 1943. With the help from his followers online, he was able to track down their relatives and later discovered they had likely fled to New York. And we were able to get in contact with that family and return those memories to them, which they had never seen before. And it was just like, it was the perfect story from start to finish of having just one or two clues and then having so many people participate in trying to find that family and then being able to find them in the end. With the viral success of his posts, people from all over the world have begun sending him materials in hopes the museum can help find the original owners. I mean, people find things in Jordan, India, South America, all over the world people have sent in things that they find at their local thrift stores or even on the ground in the street. We watched as he opened one package from the United Kingdom. Oh wow, look at this one. Looks like a group of miners. It contains both a picture and a letter written in cursive addressed to Jim, Ruth, and the boys. It begins with, birthdays keep coming along, and it's nice to think that we're remembered. If I could leave anybody with any message, it's to preserve your own family history. Scan your photographs, write down names on the back of them. If you know, you're young and your grandparents are still around, and sit with them and ask them who's in what photograph. Interview them, get their story down on video convert VHS tapes, digitize your film reels. All of this stuff is going away, and the sooner you have it preserved, the better. Guttenmacher believes it's an effort that will pay off for generations to come. For the PBS NewsHour, I'm Christopher Booker in New York. All right, before we go, we want to celebrate the man who's been one of the guiding forces and unseen heroes of this program. Our formidable director, Joe Camp, is retiring after 50 years at WETA. Joe's career here started in the early 1970s as a stagehand and cameraman. He was one of the camera operators for the Watergate hearings during PBS's gavel-to-gavel -gavel coverage that eventually led to the McNeil-Lara report, which later became the NewsHour. In 1983, Joe became a director for WIDA programs, including Washington Week, where he worked closely with our dear colleague and one of Joe's biggest fans, the late Gwen Ifill. And for the last 15 years, Joe has been directing the news hour with Jim Lehrer as anchor, then with Gwen and Judy Woodruff, and now with us. He has led our team through countless newscasts, election nights and congressional hearings, breaking news and live shows from around the world. To our team, he has been a steady, wise, generous leader who's made what you at home see on this show better with his care and skill. To me, he's been the calm but firm voice I hear in my ear, steering the ship, propelling us forward, and occasionally making us laugh. Joseph, we will miss you so. Joe, thank you for your steady hand in the control room, your camaraderie, your good humor, your dedication to the craft, but above all, thanks for being an unwavering source of support to us all. We wish you a retirement as extraordinary as the legacy that you're leaving behind. Joe, here's to you. Thank you. The gold standard. We will miss you, Sal. And that is the news hour. I'm Amna Nawaz. And I'm Jeff Bennett. Thanks so much for joining us. Have a good evening and a great weekend. <laughs>